Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following presentation is an Marvel Studios production. Welcome back, Truth Seekers, to another edition of The Flat Earth Files as we continue along the journey to truth, which is uh, cleverly laid with landmines here. Our history books, our uh, educational books, all filled with lies and narratives, and we work and try to navigate our way through all those lies and try to find our way to the truth, and it's been... A long journey, and I'm glad that you are all along the journey with me. Um, we got some great emails, and we're going to continue uh, Eric DeBay's The History of Flat Earth. So this will be part two, if you will. But we have a couple emails uh, that I wanted to get to, and I appreciate all the emails. Keep them coming. It is files at gmail.com. Again, files at gmail.com. And as always, it'll be in the show description. So uh, you can just copy and paste if you'd like to. So our first email comes from Nick in Ohio. And uh, he says he hasn't done a whole lot of research. And he's listened to other folks talk about Flat Earth. Um, but his uh, the gentleman he was listening to basically had some of the same beliefs that we speak about here on this program. Uh, he's basically new to the details of Flat Earth, but understands where we're coming from. Goes on to say he's not convinced one way or another, and to be honest, uh, with this subject or any other. Uh, he is very much a person who uh, won't believe anything until it can be proven, which is um, a smart way to take things. And this is probably one of those subjects that we talk about that we may never you know, get the truth totally about. Um, but we can certainly continue to talk about it, and I think we can disprove the other theory, which lends credence to this theory, right, the flat earth theory. Uh, he goes on to say, however, I am open to hearing both sides of the subjects and do believe our and all governments lie, so no one can be trusted 100% besides us believing in ourselves. And I say the same thing on my podcasts. Don't take everything, you know, I make mistakes. I misspeak. And just because I have a conviction in something doesn't mean it's 100% correct. And you shouldn't believe it um, wholesale. Um, You know, I hope to present you different pieces of evidence. And I want you, the listener, to take this information and discern for yourself whether or not it fits into your values, your belief system, and then go with it and do with it what you will. I just know uh, someone who's been a truther for many years and researched history, and and I've proven that uh, just about everything that our government says as official is completely, uh, you know, not factual and uh, covered in lies. Most of it, there's a slather of truth, but most of it is um, mixed with misinformation, Uh, whether it's, again, 9-11, the Iraq War, the Vietnam War, all the way back to the Spanish-American War, um, our media and the people who control the narrative very much 
um, full of lies and want to control the narrative. Um, that's why people like me get deplatformed. If I put something on YouTube, it's very quickly taken down. So he says, like Bigfoot, I don't believe or disbelieve. Uh, just because it hasn't been found doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, to satellites, and this is an interesting one for me. Satellites, you've talked about the one launched by NASA. When I heard about it, uh, the news reported it was launched and intended to impact a meteor, asteroid, or whatever. Uh, it wasn't going to hit us or anything. It was just a test. They basically guided it uh, to ramming into the object to see uh, if it would alter its trajectory in order to know if they could alter the trajectory um, and that basically so it would miss the Earth. Um, you said that they blew up an asteroid with the satellite, so is the news telling different details, or one of us heard it wrong? After the impact, they said it worked, it collided with the object and altered its course, I never heard about it, anything being blown up. The whole thing is, to me, uh, in a nutshell, is a complete lie fabrication, 110%. Uh, anything, uh, listen, anything that comes out of NASA's mouth is a complete lie, in my opinion, 100,000%. Uh, with flat Earth theory, there's no such thing as asteroids. I believe we are covered by a dome, which is known as the firmament. And Warner von Braun, again, uh, on his headstone, Psalms 19.1 is right there. And God show us, uh, show with the handiworks of the firmament. Uh, we don't live in this uh, open air space system next to a vacuum. Uh, I don't believe that. I'm not telling anybody else how to believe that. Uh, we're having a conversation. As far as what NASA says, again, I've played uh, lots of content just here in the first 13 episodes uh, proving NASA is about as trustworthy as the CEO of Enron. Right, it's they, they just do not tell the truth. And we certainly didn't go to the moon, so I don't know or understand why people still believe anything that NASA says. So we'll read this story from the New York Times because they're very much a CIA mouthpiece. Uh, this is from November. NASA took aim at an asteroid last month, and on Tuesday, the space agency announced that it's uh, planned a 14,000-mile-per-hour collision with an object named Amorphous, made even more of a bullseye shot than expected. Uh, that winning strike was the first of its kind. Quote, we conducted humanity's first planetary defense test, said Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA during a news conference. Quote, and we showed the world that NASA is a serious defender of this planet. Uh, November 21st, NASA launched the double asteroid redirection test, or DART, uh, if you don't know, the government loves acronyms. Uh, shooting a refrigerator-sized spacecraft toward a small asteroid. Scientists had created DART to destroy the spacecraft. On September 26, um, the spacecraft smashed into the small asteroid, which defenders of Earth hoped it would adjust its orbit. The strategy could protect the incoming asteroids or comets, one small shift in the space rock's trajectory could someday mean one giant sigh of relief for humankind if it pushes off an asteroid in a collision course with the Earth. So everything I just read, um, Nick, I do not believe. I don't believe much that comes out of the New York Times. I don't believe much that comes out of the Washington Post. And I believe absolutely zero that comes out of NASA. All of that... Um, was artist renditions, drawings, those type of things. It just didn't happen, in my opinion. That's all. Uh, goes on to say, so that's verbatim what the news. Um, if I said something, uh, you know, when, when I'm doing a podcast, I'm recording live. If, if I mistake something, explosion, this, that, basically it's smashing the asteroid. Uh, like you said, they said it altered its trajectory. To me, it's just all hocus pocus, uh, in my opinion. So um, he also goes to say, what about satellites pertaining to flat Earth? And to me, Nick, I believe that is one of the top five arguments against heliocentrism, against the globe. Uh, he says, without space, where are the satellites? Or if there are no satellites, what is satellite TV, GPS, those sorts of services that supposed to use satellites to work? So uh, 
I don't work for DirecTV, but being in the military and being in Iraq, I have set up many um, satellite dishes. And I know there's a lot of probably military guys out there or maybe some people who ordered Dish Network or DirecTV and did it on their own. So you have to have a specific azimuth and a specific degree that you arc um, the dish at, okay? And if we are spinning at, you know, 1,000, 1,100 miles per hour, for anyone who set up a satellite dish before and knows, uh, it, it, this is just me speaking, guys. If you have uh, an argument against this, I'd welcome your emails, and I'll read them on just like I read everybody else's on this program. Uh, you got to be spot on with an azimuth, a certain direction, and a certain angle, right? You have to face it the correct direction and then put it up and down at the correct angle, specific angle. Uh, in Iraq, we have something called... Uh, Bluebird satellite. We got AFN, you know, Armed Forces Network, and we got a couple, um, you know, Middle Eastern channels. You can watch the soccer games and and things like that. But if we are indeed spinning, and again, these satellite dishes have to be altered perfectly. Um, so are these on satellites? And if you don't know, back to our friends at NASA, and, and again, research this for yourself, NASA is the world's most number one user of helium. And there are things called satellites, which are giant balloons. They go up high into the atmosphere, and they kind of just sit there. Um, I also did have a gentleman on my podcast my other podcast a year and a half ago, I want to say the summer of maybe the fall of 2020, early 2021. Uh, it's really hard to keep track of time anymore, isn't it? But uh, it's very interesting to think that if we're spinning and all the things, all the space junk up there that's floating around is keeping in perfect synchronicity with our satellite dishes on the ground. And as far as uh, GPS, ground positioning, um, it just it triangulates between towers. Uh, um, are there satellite phones? Yep, and we've used them before in combat with no cell phone towers around. Uh, but, but getting back to the gentleman I spoke about a year, year and a half ago who was, uh, I forget if he said he was an NSA guy or some kind of contractor. Um, he said within the very top portions of intelligence, it's known that the Earth is flat and there is a way... And again, guys, I'm just telling you what someone else told me. Again, I am I don't have all the answers. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to have listener interaction. We can all share the ideas and, and kind of work this together. But he did say that there was a way, again, I'm just telling you what he said, where you uh, the, the station that is sending out the signal sends it to a certain angle, and it reflects off of the firmament because, of course, the firmament is stationary, and then it comes back down, and then... Your satellite receiver is angled into the direction coming from whatever angle, whatever math they do to figure it out. I'm just telling you what that gentleman told me. These are one of those questions that there is probably five or six different answers to. But I think the one reason, or, or I should say the one angle that goes against heliocentrism is I know the nuances of setting up a satellite dish. And if we are spinning and swirling and everything else that goes with it, I find that really hard to believe. Now, I'd love to hear from someone else who may have uh, an idea either for heliocentrism or for flat Earth theory, how satellites do work. Because even with satellites, I'm not sure how long they'd be able to keep them up. Uh, I will say something interesting. Back in the day when we had, uh, you guys know Sirius XM radio, right? It's supposed to be satellite radio. <laughs> Anytime we went to the mountains, we would lose um, we would lose a signal. At the same time, we were losing tower signals from the cell phone. So you know, a friend of I, a friend of mine, and I had discussed many times: um, is the satellite thing a scam, and are they just running this off the, the cell towers? I mean, I don't know. Look, I, I got a degree from Texas A and M in business, not. <laughs> you know, not this technology stuff. 
But I always found it interesting. If I'm in the mountains, you know, seven, six, seven, eight thousand feet, why am I uh, – technically, I feel like I'm getting closer to the satellite. I should be getting a stronger signal. Uh, you know, help me out. Tell me what you guys think. Uh, and he says, thank you in advance for your time in the podcast. And he listens on iHeartRadio. So, again, shout out uh, to Nick in Ohio for taking the time uh, to listen to the podcast and, and consider um, the alternatives to uh, the official narrative. And he is someone who does not take anything at wholesale and challenges the official narrative. So uh, keep on truth and Nick, and we appreciate the email. Uh, God bless you, brother. Um, next is Ronald. Um, I'm sorry, man. Uh, he's been listening for the past few months. Um, Let's see here. Um, great job. You were the first awake podcaster and YouTuber uh, to highlight the sacrifice of Terrence Yankee with some elaboration. And again, uh, if you haven't heard previous podcasts, Terrence Yankee was the police officer in Oklahoma City, April 19th, 1995. He was one of the very first people on the scene. He was actually writing the young lady a speeding ticket, heard the boom. He, I should say he heard two booms because there was two explosions. He made his way to the building. He rescued a lot of people, an awful lot of people, and he was on the scene, and he realized that what he saw and the official narrative uh, did not add up, and he uh, risked his life literally to get to the bottom of it. He had some answers, and they killed him for it. So God bless Terrence Yakey. I, I try to say that every time. And I feel bad because I always say one of these April 19th, I'm going to drive out to Oklahoma City and kind of not so much a street preacher, but kind of walk around the city tastefully because there's still a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people who still have relatives and families that are affected from that day. But at the same time, I, I, I would hope people would be open to the truth about what happened that day. Really do. Uh, the ATF was... Once again, the government was responsible, and the guy who was uh, head of the DOJ today, Merrick Garland, uh, one of the guys who was very much responsible uh, for putting a lid on the truth. So it was shame on him, one of my least favorite people uh, walking the earth today, and there's a long list of them. Uh, he says, you go out of your way to be broad and comprehensive with your presentation. Uh, he says, I am a flat earther and globe denier, still looking to add to my knowledge to share with others. Uh, Holy Scripture Incorporation really adds a punch. And by the way, hey, one of these days we need to have lunch. I'm uh, 45 minutes to an hour from you, Ronald. So maybe one of these days when things slow down um, and a sandwich doesn't cost $20, we can get together and have lunch sometime, buddy. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for the kind email. Uh, It's very flattering and appreciative. Back to the old inbox, we have um, the homeschooling mama from the PNW, which I, I assume is the Pacific Northwest. Uh, this is a little bit off the flat earth beaten path, but uh, I, I love answering all questions. Um, goes on to say, what are your thoughts about answers in Genesis? Uh, do you think they are corrupt and owned by satanic masons or government? Uh, or are they genuine and just don't have uh, just haven't seen the truth yet? I want so much to like them and enjoy their resources and attractions. Thank you very much, homeschool and mama. Uh, I am a homeschool and papa. I guess we homeschool here as well. Um, so for for all of you who don't know, Answers in Genesis um, is uh, a church organization. Uh, I think they're out of Kentucky. One of their, if you watch TV, you, you've seen the commercials for the big ARC exhibit that they have down there. I think it's called the ARC Encounter, uh, which is like a Noah's Ark-themed amusement park. Um, there's a website uh, that basically rates these type of organizations, churches. Um, they gave them a 70 out of 100, which is pretty good in this day and age. Uh, these are the same people that gave Joel Olstein and that church an 8 and an F and stay away from them. Um, I looked at their tax returns for the year uh, ending in 2020, June 2020. While they do make a lot of money, and yes, they are a 501c3, and I know a lot of people um, do get a little disheartened about churches that uh, become 501c3s because 
that's kind of in a way getting in bed with the government. But um, they they their total revenue, uh, you know, July first, twenty nineteen through June thirtieth, twenty twenty was about forty six million dollars. Now much of that is through. Uh, their their revenue with the ARC and, and all of that stuff, uh, they get about $20 million in contributions and grants. Now, their CEO, whose name is um, Ken Ham, he only pays himself about a quarter of a million dollars a year. And I know many of you are saying, geez, <laughs> that's a lot of money for you and me. But when you look at other CEOs for companies with that type even like the American Red Cross, if you look at a lot of these other American Heart Association, the American Cancer Association, those type of CEOs are getting multiple million dollar salaries. So for this guy to get a quarter of a million um, is very, honestly, in my opinion, even though it's a lot of money, uh, it's it's quite reasonable. And um, they do internships, paid internships for the young folks in Kentucky, help them through college. And again, they are... Uh, they believe in the Genesis creationism. Um, they don't believe in any of this mumbo-jumbo evolution, Big Bang Theory stuff. But I'm not super read up on them. So if there's any listeners out there who may be spun up on Answers in Genesis or Ken Ham, um, and, and those folks, you can send us an email, uh, theflatearthfiles at gmail.com, and we can share the information uh, with um, homeschooling mama. So, you know, maybe she can make, um, uh, you know, help her with her decision because she does, again, wants to enjoy them and their resources and the attractions because it's very hard to, you know, these mainstream churches, these big type of organizations, it, you know, it it can be difficult to trust people sometimes. So, you know, homeschooling mom is doing the right thing, asking questions. And if there's anybody out there with the knowledge, uh, hit me up and we'll share the information on the next podcast. Um, so homeschooling mama and, uh, everyone else who, uh, Nick and Ronald, thank you so much for your emails today. Um, it, it's a pleasure to, uh, speak, um, to receive emails from all of you, uh, lots of questions and inquiries that again, I don't have all the answers, but hopefully somebody listening to these podcasts will have some thoughts or even some knowledge on and share them back and, uh, we will share them with the masses. So. There you go. That is our emails for this podcast. Um, by the way, Dario, I got your follow-ups, and I'll get to you uh, for sure very soon, my friend. Let's go back to the history. And by the way, if you if this is the very first podcast you're tuning into for, for this Flat Earth Files, at least go back to episode 13, because this is a continuation of a reading. So you'll kind of be lost in the woods a little bit if you haven't heard episode 13 yet. So if this is your very first Flat Earth Files podcast, stop, collaborate, and listen. Uh, go back to episode 13, listen to that, and then jump back here, uh, right here, 22 minutes into the podcast, okay? So we're back with, again, the history of Flat Earth, talking about a century after Aristotle, around 250 BC. Uh, yet there was another Greek mathematician and philosopher named Aristophanes, who made his claim of fame with a new alleged proof of the spherical Earth. Aristophanes noted that at noon during the summer solstice in Syene, the sun cast no shadow and the rays could reach straight to the bottom of his well. Yet meanwhile in Alexandria, a vertically standing metal rod cast a significant shadow. So by factoring the length of the shadow with his assumed distance to the sun, Eratosthenes recorded a measurement of Earth's circumference close to what heliocentrist astronomers still use today. Here's the fact of the matter, however. Eratosthenes' calculations were made assuming the sun to be millions of miles away so that uh, its rays would fall perfectly parallel even in points as divergent as Syene and Alexandria. Now, this faulty premise led to his faulty conclusion, which was eventually exposed upon the invention of the nautical sextant. Using sextants and plane trigonometry, uh, trigonometry excuse me, by measuring the sun's angle at two points on Earth, simultaneously and factoring their distance from each other, the Pythagorean theorem reveals both the height and dimensions of the sun. 
Using this method, the sun and moon have repeatedly been calculated to be approximately 32 miles in diameter, 3,000 miles from the Earth's surface of the Earth. High-altitude balloon footage has also filmed lighting hot spots on clouds, proving the sun to be local and acting as a spotlight, not a burning ball of gas millions, you know, millions of miles away, which is you know, supposed by the heliocentrists. After Eratosthenes, uh, his name is so weird to say, it's, I think it's Eratosthenes, uh, the globe-earth th- theory completely disappeared from the philosophical thought and recorded history for almost two millennia. Geocentric flat-earth cosmologies continued to reign supreme, even with Aristophanes himself touted as, quote, the father of geography, depicting the earth as flat in his infamous 194 BC map of the world. Crates of Malice invented the first model of globe earth around his time as well, but it failed to have any effect on the world at large. Fast forward all the way to 1522 AD. We all have heard of the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan. He became the first person in known history to successfully sail around the world. The circumnavigation of Earth soon became and continues to be touted today as absolute proof of the spherical Earth theory. Uh, If Magellan was able to sail east-west around the entire world and return to his original starting point, uh, surely the Earth cannot be flat and must be a globe, right? Wrong. Just as a compass can place its center point on a flat Earth piece of paper, trace a circle either way around, and return to its starting point, so can a ship or plane circumnavigate a flat Earth. The only kind of circumnavigation which could not happen on a flat earth is the north-south bound, which to this day has still never been done. Both the North Pole and the Antarctic are military in force, no fly, no sail zones. And again, there's plenty of uh, videos on YouTube itself showing these independent um, researchers trying to get down there and they get rolled up on by these military ships. Um, The only ships they will allow are those from the United Nations. Again, the same United Nations that uses a flat earth map and their official logo and their flag. In 1543, just days before his death, Freemason and Jesuit Nicholas Copernicus published his book, on the revolutions of the celestial spheres, uh, which revived the old heliocentric cosmology of Pythagoras and began the so-called Copernican Revolution, uh, which really took away from the flat geocentric model and started to bring in the global heliocentric model. Since his book claimed Earth to be tilting, wobbling, spinning sphere, revolving at breakneck speeds around a stationary sun. It was initially met with due incredulity. Uh, Copernicus always countered this by claiming his theories were merely hypothesis and shouldn't be considered truth. In his book, he even wrote, quote, the Pythagorean teaching was founded upon hypothesis and is not necessary the hypothesis should be true, or even probable. The hypothesis of the movement of the Earth is only one, which is useful to explain phenomena, but it should not be considered as an absolute truth. Contemporaries of uh, Copernicus, such as Danish astronomer Tycho Bray, famously argued against his heliocentric model, positing that if the Earth revolved in an orbit around the Sun— The change in the relative position of the stars after six months of orbital motion could not fail to be seen. Uh, Brahe wrote that the stars should seem to separate as we approach and come together as we recede. In fact, after millions of miles of supposed orbit around the sun, 
not a single inch of parallax could be detected in the stars. Even as Wikipedia notes, quote, the lack of any observable parallax was considered a fatal flaw in any non-geocentric theory. Copernicus's answer was uh, this obvious problem, or sorry, Copernicus's answer to this obvious problem was simple. He moved the stars so ridiculously far away from the Earth that even after millions of miles of supposed orbit around the sun, no appreciable parallax could be detected. Copernicus simply needed to claim that the stars were trillions upon trillions of miles away. So then, mathematically speaking, it would indeed be impossible to detect such a slight parallax. Again, contemporaries of Copernicus argued against this convenient correction of his, arguing quite rightly that if the stars were trillions of miles away, then there is no way that we could see them. Backpedaling once again, Copernicus claimed the reason we could still see stars trillions of miles away was because they were not mere tiny points of translucent light in the sky, but the stars were, in fact, gigantic gas balls billions of times larger than our sun. So, first, Copernicus had to move the stars trillions of miles from Earth to explain away the lack of parallax, and then he had to make the stars billions of times larger to account for why we should see them at all from such a fantastical, dis- uh, fantastical difference. Distance, why am I struggling to read tonight? Lastly, he offered very specific distances and mathematical equations to solidify his theory, claiming, for instance, that he had accurately calculated the sun's distance from Earth to be exactly 3,391,200 miles. At the turn of the 17th century, Tycho Brahe, under the patronage of Emperor Rudolf II, began construction of the largest, most state-of-the-art astronomical observatory ever built. Upon hearing this, German astronomer and Freemason Kepler was determined to apprentice under Brahe. Even though Kepler championed Copernicus's widely disputed heliocentric globe Earth theory, Brahe begrudgingly accepted Kepler as his apprentice uh, based on his merit as an astute astronomer and mathematician. Brahe allowed Kepler access to the observatory, but guarded his data and findings from him completely, which both frustrated and angered Kepler to the point of eventually culminating in a heated argument between the two of them, resulting in Brahe kicking Kepler out. After much amends and apologizing, after a year, Brahe finally forgave Kepler and accepted him back as his apprentice. This time, however, Kepler was not content with his role as a mere apprentice and soon proposed and secured a commissioned position on Brahe and Emperor Rudolf's new project, known as the Rudolphine Astronomical Tables. Less than a month later, Tycho Brahe mysteriously dropped dead, and Kepler was given access to all of Brahe's coveted data. He had free reign of the observatory and became Emperor Rudolf's new official astronomer. Abundant circumstantial evidence and obvious motive have long fed speculation that Kepler actually murdered Brahe. Brahe was only 54 years old and was in fine health when he suddenly became deathly ill and passed away. His official cause of death was reported as a bladder infection, but subsequent autopsies of his body revealed toxic quantities of mercury present on his mustache hairs, which has led many researchers to conclude he was poisoned. The 2004 book Heavenly Intrigue suggested that Kepler had indeed murdered Brahe to gain access to his data. Kepler himself never denied this, and he actually wrote, quote, I confess that when Tycho died, I quickly took advantage of the absence and the lack of circumspection of the heirs by taking the observations under my care 
or perhaps usurping them. And so for the remainder of his life, Kepler worked at Brahe's observatory for Brahe's employer, using his data to further his Copernican theories, which Brahe had always criticized. He modified Copernicus's calculations of celestial motions, changing them uh, from perfect circles to irregular ellipses, and even formulated a new updated distance of the sun from Earth. While Copernicus had claimed positively the sun to be about 3.3 million miles from Earth, Kepler assured the astronomical community that his new figure of over 12 million miles was the true distance. A few years later, in 1608, the first telescope was invented, and by 1609, the next champion of Copernicanism, the Italian astronomer and Freemason and probable Jesuit Galileo Galilei had purchased and built several of them. Galileo improved on the telescope's design, uh, boosting the zoom capabilities from the originally three times all the way to 30 times magnification. And in 1610, he made the most important alleged discovery of his career. With his 30 times zoom telescope, Galileo claimed to have seen what he described as three fixed stars, totally invisible by their smallness, all close to Jupiter and lying on a straight line through it. After tracking these invisible stars for a while and noticing they appeared sometimes, but not others, Galileo concluded that uh, when he could not find them, they must be hiding behind Jupiter, and therefore they must not be invisible stars at all, but rather invisible moons that were orbiting Jupiter. His alleged discovery of the moons orbiting Jupiter was then touted as proof of the Copernican system, claiming that the Earth must be a planet like Jupiter since both have orbiting moons. To this day, NASA claims to have special telescopes which can, on occasion, see these moons of Jupiter, just as Galileo claimed in his day. Nowadays, with modern telescopes and zoom technology, we can see the celestial bodies far closer and with more far clarity than Galileo could have ever hoped for. Of course, the 2016 Nikon P900 had an 83 times optical zoom and a 332 times digital capabilities, which of course put Galilean telescopes to shame. Yet, even with this level of magnification, Galileo's alleged invisible stars orbiting Jupiter are nowhere to be found. Galileo and his fellow Freemason predecessors, acting more like true believers of their heliocentric faith than legitimate scientists, were constantly guilty of inventing elaborate theories to support their foregone conclusion. This was never more evident than when Galileo presented his theory on the cause of the tides in 1616. Cardinal Bellarmine had written Galileo the year before, stating that, quote, the Copernican system could not be defended without a true physical demonstration that the sun does not circle the earth, but the earth circles the sun. Taking this to heart, Galileo hoped to show that the earth's tides were caused by the sloshing back and forth of water as a point on earth's surfaces sped up and slowed uh, due to the Earth's alleged rotation on axis and revolution around the sun. He argued that these hypothetical motions of his globular Earth were the cause of tides, and therefore the tides were proof of the Earth's motion. Unfortunately for Galileo, his ideas were not accepted and easily proven wrong by his contemporaries, who rightly pointed out that if his theory were correct, there would be only one high tide per day. Not only this, but if tides were caused by the Earth's alleged motion, all the lakes, ponds, and other inland bodies of water should be similarly affected. Yet we know 
they are not. The next champion of heliocentrism was English mathematician and astronomer and knighted Freemason and Royal Society president. Uh, Everybody knows this guy, Sir Isaac Newton. In 1687, Newton published his famous Principia Mathematica, which presented his idea of gravity to the world. This Glober theory had long faced criticism for being impractical due to the natural physics of spinning spherical objects. Namely, that anything placed on their surface should immediately fly or fall off. How could people, buildings, and the great oceans remain perfectly stuck to a ball earth spinning faster than the speed of sound. The globe earth theory needed a force that could keep everything in place somehow, a force strong enough to keep the ocean stuck to the earth, but weak enough not to sink a sailboat, a force strong enough to drag the entire atmosphere along with the earth's breakneck speed yet weak enough to allow birds and bugs to travel freely, unabated in all directions. A force so strong it could make rain fall upwards and plants grow upside down, but yet so weak that it could not be detected by any contemporary methods. Newton's postulate of any invisible force able to act over vast distances led him to being heavily criticized for introducing occult agencies into the field of science. And again, uh, Nikola Tesla said that these type of people were taking science and and turning it into math just because somebody can put some numbers together just like the previous guy did. He moved the stars and, and and the sun back so it would mathematically work. And that's all they are doing. They're not proving anything. They're just saying, oh, look, I fixed the numbers, so this equation works, so we must be living on a globe. Previous to Newton's theory of universal gravitation, the natural laws of density and buoyancy already perfectly and adequately explain the world around us. For example, the reason a balloon filled with helium rises into the sky while a balloon filled with air drops to the ground isn't because of Newton's mystical pulling force has an adverse you know, reaction to helium, but rather simply because helium is lighter and less dense than nitrogen, oxygen, and other elements which compose the air around it, so it floats up. And conversely, a balloon filled with your carbon dioxide exhalation is heavier and denser than the air around it, so it falls to the ground. If you blow a dandelion seed out of your hands, uh, a substance just barely heavier than air, it'll float away and slowly, eventually fall to the ground. However, if you drop an anvil from your hands or a hammer, you know, something much heavier than the air, it will quickly and directly fall straight to the ground. This is not because gravity prefers anvils to dandelion seeds, but rather because it is the natural physics of buoyancy for objects less dense than the medium surrounding them to rise, while objects denser than the medium surrounding them sink. This is the reason raindrops fall down through the air and bubbles rise up through the water, because of their relative densities. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the mystical pulling force of spinning balls from Newton's imagination. Newton's theory allegedly began when he saw an apple fall from a tree uh, at Woolsthorpe, as though no one in the history of humanity up to that point had ever seen a falling object and wondered why it fell. But Newton had this verifiable scientific epiphany. The apple fell not because it was heavier and denser than the air around it, but rather because a force at the center of the spinning ball earth pulled it to the ground. Newton quickly got to work formulating his theory of universal gravitation, which he used to explain not only falling objects, but also orbiting celestial bodies. It's interesting. All these characters uh, have these stories. You know, Newton with the apple, uh, they all have their stories. Newton claimed that the sun, moon, and earth 
the planets and stars' gravity caused them to all orbit around the most massive nearby bodies. So not only was it gravity fickle and selective about which objects it caused to fall and which allowed to rise, gravity was also able to perform different functions on different scales. So at the human scale, gravity allegedly caused people, buildings, and oceans to stick to the Earth, while at the planetary scale... Gravity, uh, gravity allegedly caused moons to orbit around planets and planets to orbit around stars. Unfortunately, Newton never addressed this. But the question remains, how and why would gravity cause both planets to orbit the sun and people to stick to the earth? Gravity should either cause people to float around in suspended circular orbits around the earth or it should cause the Earth, Moon, and planets to all be pulled and crash into the Sun. The two effects are very different, yet the same cause is attributed to both. Furthermore, this magnetic-like attraction of massive objects, gravity, is purported to have and can be found nowhere in the natural world. There is no example in nature of a massive sphere or any other shaped object which by virtue of its mass alone causes smaller objects to stick to or orbit around it. There is nothing on earth massive enough that it can be shown to cause even a dust bunny to stick to it or orbit around it. Try spinning a wet tennis ball or any other spherical object with smaller things placed on its surface and you will find that everything falls or flies off. Nothing sticks to it. Nothing orbits it. To claim the existence of a physical law without a single practical evidential example is hearsay, not science. By now, you're likely beginning to see that these Freemason heliocentric priests are less interested in science and the truth than they are in propagating this contrived evidence for their foregone conclusions. In like manner, as Copernicus uh, had claimed positively the sun to be 3.3 million miles away, and then Kepler had calculated it to be 12 million miles away, Newton was quoted as remarking, quote, it matters not whether we reckon it 28 or 54 million miles distant, for either would do just as well. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And it appears he was correct because the alleged distance around the heliocentric sun has continued to increase, and today Nashville's current official figure is somewhere around $93 million. And uh, many people know the Captain Cook story back in 1773, but old Captain Cook became the first modern explorer known to have breached the Antarctic Circle and reached the ice barrier. This expedition offered an exciting chance to find proof of either flat or globe Earth models because Captain Cook intended to sail completely around Antarctica looking for inlets through the ice wall. If the Earth was indeed a globe 25,000 miles in equatorial circumference, just as all the heliocentrists claim, then a complete circumnavigation of Antarctica would be about 12,000 miles. And if the Earth was flat, with Antarctica surrounding the entire circumference, uh, you're talking a circumnavigation of fifty to 60,000 miles. Now, during the three voyages, lasting three years and eight days, three years and eight days, Captain Cook and his crew sailed a total of 60,000 miles along the Antarctic coastline, never finding one inlet or path through or beyond the massive glacial wall. So again, at the center of the Earth, uh, they claim it's about 25,000 miles. Uh, on the bottom of the ball Earth, circumferencing Antarctica should be about ten to 12,000 miles. They logged 60,000 miles which again lends to they just went around the ice wall. That is, um, that's the only thing that makes sense. 
Captain Cook wrote, quote, The ice extended east and west far beyond the reach of our sight, while the southern half of the horizon was illuminated by rays of light, which were reflected from the ice to a considerable height. And we'll talk more about Captain Cook and later voyages by James Clark Ross and Captain George Nares in the 19th century and much more on the next edition of the Flat Earth Files. As always, uh, it is a pleasure and a privilege to receive your emails. Um, I appreciate you all taking the time to listen to these podcasts, to be open-minded and uh, question the official narrative because we've been lied to about so, so much. So thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart to today's emailers. And if you'd like to join the show or share your thoughts, again, it is the flat earth files at gmail.com. That information can be located in the show description. Again, for everyone here, we appreciate you guys. God bless you all, each and every one of you. Keep ahead on a swivel. And until next time, my friends, we'll see you. Hunter Radio Network. Just the facts, ma'am.